0: Are you ready to, today, wrap up our study of the book of Revelation? (laughs) So open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Now, we are concluding our study of the letters to the churches in Revelation. Because in the opening passages of the the text are these these two phrases that have uh, influenced, that have inspired our study. The first one is this, blessed are those who read, hear, and heed these words. Blessed are those who read, hear, and heed these words. Secondly, if you have ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Number one, we are blessed if we, if we hear these and we respond. And, and secondly, we need to understand that there is an imperative that we had... We need to believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking and listen. Are you ready to listen? All right. Well, here's what we've read so far. Here's a, a quick recap. You ready? We have read that this whole book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the author and the subject of the whole thing. It's about Jesus. But in the beginning of this, John, the revelator, describes his vision of the exalted Christ who has come with a message to seven churches in the eastern part of Asia. These seven churches, we have don't have time to go over it today, but these seven churches are literal and they're real. They also mystically or metaphorically are, are, represent all the churches because of this idea of seven uh, in the scriptures. That's the idea of fullness. This is a message that, that for them. Furthermore, just the literary evidence, um, each church has a message, but each church received all the messages to the other churches too. So they all read each other's mail. And that was on purpose. What was read by one was read by all. And so they all were supposed to pay attention. And if they all were supposed to pay attention, so must we must pay attention. Okay? Now. So just as they heard and that they read and they responded, so we're going to. Now, there has been a small, very small, but but not insignificant um, protest uh, by some of you precious, wonderful heritage people. Uh, Something to the effect of, hey, why are you stopping? (laughs) The protest doth grow. Um, Hey, Deb, what about? what about bulls and seals and horses and the horror of Babylon and all that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, see, yeah, you asked for it. Um, well, there is more to the book of Revelation than these letters. And uh, as a faithful steward of the scriptures, we'll come back and uh, we'll talk about some of these things. It may be more of a instead of a, a Sunday morning spread out, because, you know, there's like 22 chapters here, uh, we may tackle larger swaths of it, particularly because, for instance, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are really almost together. They're, we, could just read, we could literally just read those and then sing, because they're, they're just depictions of the throne room. So the comment is, read it, and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the, there's the comment. Hallelujah. So, well, we, we can and, and should take time to go through that. And there is some other stuff. Well, I mean, chapters 4 and 5, you got seals and horses and books and angels and trumpets. Here. I want us now, let me, all, all, all festivists aside, let's just lean in here and let me say this. Too often, the church has sped past these letters in order to occupy themselves in speculation about mystical and eschatological matters. And perhaps unintentionally escape the ethical demands of this book in favor of end-time escapism. Certainly not anybody in this house, but I'm just saying that as a church boy, it, is, it has not been unusual for people to say, "Oh, look, let's talk about the book of Revelation and let's find ourselves escaping into into paintings of horses and scorpions and and Beatles music and 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 and." And we miss the fact that this is a prophetic letter with, an absolute, with, with absolute demand that those who read it respond ethically to it. We must never rush past ethics in our pursuit of eschatology. Make no mistake, there is a present expectation for an immediate ethical response to the words that we are reading. We've heard Jesus challenge the churches to return to their first love. To repent of sin. To wake up from spiritual death. To not be afraid. And to keep on. To to complete their race. To hold fast to their faith. We've also heard Jesus express serious concern over abandoned affection for the Lord. Abandoned affection, not just misplaced. He's expressed serious concern over immorality and idolatry in the church. If it were possible, friends, if it were possible for these people who were so close. Just one, essentially, almost essentially one generation away from Christ himself. To find themselves in a place where the Lord himself is challenging the immorality and idolatry in the church. We have to be honest enough to say, take off our shiny uh, glasses upon which we see, with which we see ourselves, we have to say, "Wow! If it were possible for them to wander off, we've heard Jesus express serious concern over a death-inducing shift in their fundamental attitude toward the Holy Spirit." In each of these, I pray that as an equal audience to the, uh, these letters, that, that we, you know, we are an equal audience, right? So I pray that we listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to this church. We will be no less rewarded than those we have read about. Therefore, we should be just as encouraged. We should be just as moved toward fast faith and fervent love. We should should be just as resolved to abandon all immorality and idolatry. We are no less accountable to Jesus and should expect no less discipline and correction from our Lord should we fail to heed his words. So let's conclude by hearing what the Spirit has to say to the last of these seven churches, the church in Laodicea. We're picking it up in verse 14 of chapter 3, 3, 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, The beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If, any, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. <laughs> Certain texts draw elicit a more robust amen. Why don't you give it the benefit of the doubt and let's say, let let the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word. And everyone said, there we go. Get your faith out there and lay hold of something because I think this is going to be good. Laodicea. Laodicea was a wealthy city in this time period. Uh, they were rich, and they were proud of it. So proud were they were, they wealth. You remember we said a, a week or so ago where, uh, yeah, was it Philadelphia? Philadelphia, they, we talked about the earthquake in Philadelphia and how it destroyed the city in A.D. 16, and that the Emperor Tiberius gave them certain tax breaks and all that kind of thing. Yeah, sorry, I make Philadelphia great again, he said. But um, uh, he gave them tax breaks and all of that. Just kidding. And uh uh, uh And they they accepted and they rebuilt Philadelphia. But Laodicea refused any help. They were just as devastated by that massive earthquake, but they said, we don't want your help. They said, we don't need any help. We have need of nothing. We'll handle it ourselves. They claimed that they needed nothing because they had everything. They had powerful banks. They were a banking center. They hosted gladiatorial games. And they had theaters. So essentially, Laodicea had Wall Street, Hollywood, and ESPN. Don't answer yet because they also specialized in producing a shiny Black wool, so they also were. Uh, they also had. They, uh, they were involved in, in advance and, and famous for their fashion industry. They A little Beverly Hills in there too. Wow. They were also proud of their medical centers. They produced a special salve called Phrygian powder. And this powder, when like I suppose mixed with water or whatever, would turn into something that looked like a cake batter, and you could place it upon the eyes. And they were famous for how well this salve worked to, to treat the diseases of the eye. They were wealthy, they were comfortable, they were entertained, and they were proud of it. They also had no water. No seriously they had no water supply of their own that they could drink they had to pipe in water from out of town there was fresh and cold drinking water from the the mountain area of coloss not far away we know coloss that's where paul wrote the letter to the church in colossians Colossus had mountain, fresh mountain water springs and rivers that would flow down. Beautiful, sparkling water we have in the Northwest. There was water there, so they had to pipe that water in from Colossus. And from Hierapolis, another neighboring town, Hierapolis had hot springs, hot water, medicinal for bathing and for medicine. They, they came up right up out of the ground like, like a bubble in crude. It came up right out of the ground. And so they piped that in too. But by the time the water reached Laodicea, it was polluted with sediments from the pipes. And it was neither nor it was, yeah, it was, tepid, it was polluted, and it was useless. The water was the water <laughs> the water in Laodicea was actually vomit inducing. Yum. Yeah, that's the situation there. Their water was useless. And to the church in this city, Christ identifies himself here as the amen, the faithful and true witness. And then the, the NASB says the beginning of the creation of God. Now, that's, you know, that's on purpose, although it might, it might make someone think, oh, he was, Christ is a created being. No, the beginning there is, is a capital B, and it means, whew, it means the originator. Christ is the originator of creation, the ruler. He is the agent of everything that has been made. Christ identifies himself once again as God, very God. We hear these set these sentiments expressed in the book of Isaiah again. Isaiah 41:4. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first. This happens again in Isaiah 44:6 and in Isaiah 44:12. This is on purpose to identify with the audience that Jesus is God, very God. And this one is he is speaking and he addresses the condition of the church there in Laodicea. What was their condition? It was tepid Christianity. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible says. I wish you were cold or hot. Now, this is where I should pause and say we're about to mess with every, not every, but many youth pastors' favorite sermons. Because if you grew up in church, you heard this probably the youth pastors say, man, Jesus wishes you were either cold or hot. He wishes you would either live for the devil or live for him. But if you're not, and then That see, what that was a brilliant strategy because no kid in the youth group wanted to live for the devil. So really, it left you no choice. Because he said, he either wants you to live for the devil or live for Jesus with all your heart. And if you're somewhere in between, he'll vomit you out. So you have no choice but to be on fire for Jesus. And then come right now and get saved. And, and, and then they all come, and then, they have, then afterwards they roast hot dogs. Uh, and I'll tell you what, I'm not opposed to that. I'm not, it's kind of a teleological uh, ethic there. I'm, it, it, in other words, it produces the right result. It's just not what the Bible says. But that wouldn't be the first time the church has been guilty of that. Here's what he says. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. He says he knows the church. That the church, he says, the church in Laodicea is like the water there. It is tepid and contaminated. Like the water, they had become useless. Useless. They offered neither refreshing nor healing. The spiritual, one commentator wrote this, the spiritual worthlessness of the church at Laodicea was nauseating to the Lord. Another wrote this, Jesus found their tepid, their tepid indifference repugnant. What was the root of this problem? You know the condition they were they were tepid passionless passionless and polluted what was the root of this problem well it would make for good preaching to say that Hey, if you have to pipe in your water from somewhere else, if you have to import or imitate others because you've got nothing springing up from within, then that would leave you a tepid and a worthless uh, taste in anybody's mouth. That'd make for pretty good preaching. It'd make for good preaching for me to say, if you are looking for water from elsewhere instead of letting his living water bubble up from the well inside your own soul, then you might have a water problem. That would make for pretty good preaching. It also make for pretty good preaching to church leaders if I said, if your only hope is to bring in another guest or to hire another consultant or to imitate another successful program, then you might have a water problem. That may make for good preaching, and it's all true, but it's not necessarily the problem here. Their problem was their pride. Their problem was their pride. Everybody say their pride. Their problem was their pride. This is what you, this is, Jesus identifies it exactly. What you say, what was, why was the church lukewarm? Why was it tepid? What created this tepid environment? Pride. Verse 17, there, because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, the church had the same attitude as their city. They believed they were in need of nothing. The spirit of the culture had infected the church. Passionless Christianity festers in comfort. Nobody here is opposed to comf- comfort. I would prefer you to be comfortable than miserable. I believe the Lord would rather you not be miserable. The caveat or the problem is this, and it's, this, it's always been this way. Whenever the people of God walk in what the way the Lord intends them to walk, they, they have to steward their own passions. Because passionless Christianity can fester in comfort. That's on you. That's on me. We get to choose see, in Laodicea, in contrast to the other churches in their area, the other, in the other, the other churches in other cities around them, the church in Laodicea, they didn't feel the pressure of persecution. They didn't feel the burden of poverty, nor the hostility that comes from living as a radical alternative to the culture around you. Their attitude was this. We are full, we are fine, and we don't need anything. And with that, they became useless, tepid, passionless, worthless, nauseating. Now, this is where I might pause and just express mild concern for the idea of of a felt need-based gospel. Number one, does the gospel meet humanity's needs? And then some, the gospel is the great solution. The gospel is the answer, capital A. The gospel meets every need we could ever have as humanity. It meets every need we know we have. It meets every need we don't even know we have. The gospel is the answer. And as our lives conform to the truth of the gospel and the wisdom of the gospel, we can walk in the way that God describes and prescribes. We can walk in blessing. We can walk in fullness. There is one area of our lives that the gospel doesn't touch and bless and transform. Does the gospel meet human need? You betcha. And then some. Is the point of the gospel to meet our need? No. The point of the gospel is the glory of God. The point of the gospel is the glory of God. If it were simply to meet needs, then, it, we, would simp- then we would simply be uh, waiters and waitresses offering people something that they are at liberty to decline. Would you care for some more? Why, no, thank you, I'm full. Fine then, Here, we're good. Would you care to be saved? Why, no, thank you, I'm fine. Okay, you're fine, on your way, you're fine. The gospel is not an invitation, it is a command. Repent and believe, follow me. Those are commands from the one who died for us and was raised to life again. They are commands from the one who is the the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of creation, issues the command. The point of the gospel is the glory of God, and so while it is true and we celebrate and we delight in the fact that, that this gospel does meet all of our needs, we, we, do not, we do not construct a culture around just meeting needs. Otherwise, as soon as we stop feeling, feeling our need, we'll always be in need whether we feel it or not. That's what we learned from Laodicea. They were in deep need. They just didn't believe it. But as soon as we stop feeling that we need anything, we become tepid, useless. Because I, really, this idea of it being about meeting my needs, I I place myself in the center of the room as the idol. Christianity becomes an idol unto myself. Everything is about meeting the need that I have. Now, does the gospel meet our needs? And then some. Praise him. He is so praiseworthy. He is so praiseworthy. He's so praiseworthy. But the goal of the gospel is the glory of God. Jesus said because this church had absorbed themselves and their needs and decided they didn't need anything else, he actually said that their condition is it would be better to be read this way. You think you are wealthy and have it in need of nothing, but you are actually pitifully wretched. Your, that you have, your pride, everyone say pride, because I know it would be easy, it would be very easy, and it would make for, for hard and harsh and pokey preaching. For, hear, for us to hear him say, "You're pitifully wretched, and you're poor, and you're poor, and you're blind, and you're naked," and that to, to somehow go after people's, "You're not being Christian enough, or you're not doing this enough, or you're not doing that enough, or you're not, you're wearing, you know, too much miniskirts or makeup, or you're doing this wrong or that wrong," or all the lists that we have that we hammer on people, and the only thing that Jesus was addressing here was their pride. It was their pride that had made them tepid and passionless, and useless. It's amazing. uh, When the church yields to or gives way to pride, she becomes useless. Wow. So he says, you're pitifully wretched because you're poor, blind, and naked. Your pride, he actually says, because your pride has actually blinded you to your real need, and it has made you even more in need but what's the solution? He's, what's the solution of Jesus? He gives them their solution. Be zealous and repent. Wow. I advise you, he says, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might become rich, white garments so you may clothe yourself, and the, so that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and the, an eye salve to anoint your eyes that you might see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus tells them that they do need from him gold refined by fire. They need faith and devotion that is pure, with no sediments, no compromise, and no corruption. He tells them that they do need from him garments of righteousness. Notice he says white garments here. He's so so tricky. See, he's poking at them. Remember, they prided themselves in their black wool, that shiny, fancy stuff. He said, no, you're dressing wrong. They prided themselves in their bank. He said, no, you need gold from me. That's pure and real. You need garments from me that will cover your shame. Aren't you glad that the gospel covers the shame of our nakedness? Yeah. Then he says, they also do need from him healing deliverance to see the truth of their need. He said, By, you need to get from me real eye salt. Remember they had that Phrygian stuff that they thought worked? He said, no, no, all that powder, you're not seeing a thing. You need to, what You need me to open your eyes so that you see the truth of what you really need. Then he explains this, and it's so important that we hear this phrase. He explains that reproof and discipline are an expression of his love. Or someone say love. This, 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 this attitude, these statements from Jesus, it helps us understand that Jesus is not a one-dimensional figure. He is not the happy elf passing out unicorns and daisies to everybody. Nor is he, you know, Jesus dressed as Rambo, coming with a vengeance, just angry and grunting. Raw ah, Jesus. No, 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 no. This time it's personal. No. No. This is a Jesus, this, the very same Jesus who laid down his life, who stretched out his arms on a cross because of immeasurable love. That same love drives him to speak correction and reproof to the very church that he loves. He says, "Those whom I, if he loved you enough to die for you, he loves you enough to correct you. The prescription is the main imperative in this passage is this. Be zealous. Ooh, Everybody say it out loud. Be zealous. Be zealous and repent. In other words, earnestly turn away from your passionless Christianity. Be zealous. Be fervent in spirit. The root word of this idea of, of being zealous is, means to boil over. I find it interesting, friends, that with the first church, if you look at all seven of these letters now, with the first church, Ephesus, Jesus requires that they return to their first love. And now with the last church, he insists on their zeal. Interesting. That what is often treated as elective, as cute, as froth, as matters of small concern, Jesus views as vital organs. The bookend desires of Jesus for the churches are love and zeal. And to these churches, because they lack these virtues, he says, repent. Repent. Oh, everybody say it out loud. Oh, say it like you're happy. Try to say it. Try to say it without a furrowed eyebrow. Try to lift your eyebrows and say it. I know everybody's like. Rawr, rawr, rawr. Repent doesn't repent does not mean I hate you. Repent doesn't mean sour, sad, bad. Re- look at if you think I have a friend, I have a colleague in ministry who I, I have read it. I've read him say it, and I, I think I know what he means. He's always trying to provoke people and poke people, and I get it. He thinks he's really funny, and the truth is he is really funny. But he's, one time I read something that he wrote, and he said, Jesus repented for you. Okay, yeah, yeah, he's talking about the, to fulfill all righteousness and Jesus going before us and all that. But the idea, but, but, but the problem is people read that and think, oh, I don't need to repent anymore. Because, you know, because of the, the, it's, it is finished, therefore I don't have to repent anymore. No, 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 that's not at all what it means. This is, all of this is written after the cross and the resurrection. All of this is written after the finished work. It's just as finished. And because it is finished, you still have opportunity to repent. The finished work of Jesus Christ doesn't pacify you and isolate you and freeze you in time. It activates you. It inspires you. It animates you. It gives you opportunity to live. He has broken loose and broken open to you a whole new world, a whole new place of adventure and life and living. And one of Jesus' favorite phrases to the very people who know about his work is, repent. one of the most often commands of jesus to these churches repentance is the most comprehensively beneficial act it's almost as good as praise almost repentance is the most renewing the most healing the most restoring the most righting of wrong acts okay. nothing changes without repentance If you're all twisted up in a bad attitude, you're going to stay that way until you repent. But the fastest way, the fastest way to freedom, restoration, and joy is to repent. What does that mean? It means to recognize what is wrong, to reverse the course, and to return to what is right with all you have. You know what's great about repentance? Repentance is the antidote to pride. You cannot clothe yourself in pride and repent at the same time. The first thing that comes off in repentance is that cloak of pride. I love to talk to, I suppose just to men, but I suppose it's, you know, any spouse or anybody or any person, any kind of relationship. If you're... Chances are one of the first problems is your own pride <laughs> You can say no as long as Barney's right next to you so you don't have to admit <laughs> repentance is the antidote to pride if pride if pride is the thing that leads to and 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 Uh, 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 fuels tepid Christianity, then let us be quick to repent. Listen, no one who has, we've said this before, I'll say it a hundred more times, no one who has repented has regretted it. In the scriptures, everybody who repents goes away happier. Lighter, freer, most of them more healed. Forgiven, healed, free, happy, everything. Nobody who repents says, oh, golly, I wish I hadn't repented. (laughs) I've, I've never seen it. No one who has ever rejected repentance has remained alive. We should be quick to repent and skilled at it. It it should be the first lever that we pull whenever we sense a wrong attitude stirring. If so, we'll be better off for it and happier and healthier. So will your heart and your home and your other things. Repentance is the way to revival. Especially when we understand we're not talking about just, when we say repentance, we're not talking about beating ourselves up with a club. Talking about throwing off things that don't belong in our hearts or our minds. Repentance is the way to revival. This is actually what Jesus says next. He says, I be zealous and repent. Listen, verse 20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, once again, normally, this verse is used to mean that people can be born again if they will answer the door because Jesus is knocking. And you know what? Amen does go there because it's not untrue. Jesus is knocking. He does initiate salvation. The gospel is his idea. Salvation is his idea. You're not seeking him. He's seeking you. You haven't chosen him, he's chosen you. He is knocking on your door. The 400,000 people in Clark County right now, Jesus is knocking on their door. And he is looking for an opportunity to come in with them. Amen. Oh, say it like you mean it. I don't mean to leave out Portland. I think that's a great opportunity for a church plant someday. Hallelujah. I mean that in a good way, and an honorary way. a good way because I like church, and the plant because, anyway, just happy. Y'all come, everybody come, come home, north, south. He said south, right? Okay, here we go. Come home. So this is true. Jesus is knocking. He is initiating. But here's the, but it's it's far more it's far more poignant than that. Because he's not, it's, it's, it's okay. I mean, it, it makes sense for us to think, oh, he's knocking at the door of the unbeliever's heart. Hallelujah. That makes sense. That feels right. But he's knocking at the door of the church. How to get out there? No, are you hearing this? They're having church. And he's out there. How do you get out there? Pride. Pride. Behold, I'm out. I'm not even inside. Are you enjoying church? Because I'm not there. Well, we are wealthy and we have need of nothing. Where'd Jesus go? Jesus you guys hear that he's knocking at the door of the church the imagery here from the if we if we borrow it once again from the Old Testament it means one of at least two things I don't know which one is it is, it could be one or both, it, but it, they both matter. In Song of Solomon, he would be the, it would be the knock of a returning lover. One who longs for our company and our intimacy and our affection. In other passages, it's the knock of a returning master. Either way, the knock means that Jesus desires to return. He, he desires to be with them. He says, if you open the door through repentance... He said, I will come in and we will eat together. This, this is, this absolutely is an expression. This, this kind of a meal that they're talking about here is a meal that was for friends. It was a meal that was shared. It was the main meal of the day. It was a meal that was shared with, with, in, with, in, with friends and with family in covenant relationship. It was also, also it was a meal when you were going to initiate or renew a covenant with someone, you would sit down and have a meal together. Jesus says, if you'll open the door, if you'll open the door, we can return. We can restore our relationship. Do you hear? Isn't this amazing? He's talking to the very same people who he had just said their attitude was nauseating. But this is not some one-dimensional moody Jesus. Your attitude is nauseating, but I long for your company. If you'll repent, open the door. This is what he wanted for Laodicea, restored relationship. It's what he wants for everyone who will open the door for him. Verse 21, he says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's a, This is an amazing statement. Jesus says that he who overcomes, You will rule with me. I will share my rule with you. And once again, who is he talking to? Laodicea. Listen to him. He always speaks to our expectations. He always offers us far more than we deserve. The gospel is not about what we deserve. It's not even about our need. It is about his glory. Glory. That's why Ephesians says, when we see what God has done, the only response we're ever going to be able to have is to praise Him for eternity. And here he is again saying, oh, if you'll just repent, I'm going to bring you so close. I'm going to share my throne with you. Listen to people that have, listen, their pride, their exalting of themselves, In exalting themselves, they have settled for less than Jesus. But if they'll open the door, he will exalt them beyond what they could have ever done. We're proud. We have need of nothing. Oh, you've got nothing. But if you'll let me in, I'll share my throne with you. Wow. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What about to this church, to Heritage, as we close this morning? What's he saying to Heritage? What might he say? Well, we read these passages, and my first response is this. I thank God that Heritage Church is a wonderful, passionate place. On any given Sunday, I can barely get you to calm down. I don't, I don't really want to. Hang on, guys. We, you can come up, but we we got some time left. I appreciate you coming, but... Sometimes you come and they think, oh, we're done. And I got two more pages. <laughs> and you start playing me off like we're at the Oscars or something. I'm not getting off. <laughs> shh, shh. We are, again, Heritage Church is a wonderful and passionate place. However, we are part of the larger church in the Pacific Northwest and in North America. And because of that, we have to admit that we are not immune to the effects of tepid Christianity. Or at least we shouldn't assume or insist that it could never touch us. That would be pride. Tepid Christianity is respectable. It is tidy. It is, it is cooperative. It It doesn't get in the way of social progress. Tepid Christianity is affirming. It accommodates and condones sin. In tepid Christianity, worship becomes entertainment, mission becomes maintenance, and discipleship is no longer about sacrifice or service, but about self-care. Tepid Christianity festers in comfort and is constructed around what we feel our needs are, and it is fueled by pride. Tepid Christianity says we we need nothing. I suppose this is the thing that i i i i, I might give my i might be concerned about more often than not as a church boy. Is when I hear. Directly or the inference of, well, it's only, you know, when who we are or what we do becomes an only. When people begin to express indifference because to them, maybe they just don't feel like it's meeting their need. I, I worry a little bit. Tepid Christianity happens when we are no longer, please hear this correctly, intentionally desperate. I mean, desperate by faith. Not desperate because I'm afraid or desperate because I'm in panic or desperate because I feel like I'm lacking something or that God has forgotten about me or I'm begging for his attention. But I'm intentionally desperate. I recognize who God is. I recognize who I am not. I recognize what need there still exists in my world. I recognize that this is about God's glory and not about my comfort. And when, I rec- when I live that way, I become intentionally desperate. We actually live like Jesus. Jesus didn't need, what did he need? Was he worried? Is that why he would spend a whole night in prayer, why he would give himself to prayer? No, he wasn't desperate for his father's approval. He wasn't living for approval. He was living from it. But but Jesus lived a passionate life, intentionally, entirely dependent upon the life-giving influence and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Tepid Christianity says, you know, spirituality is fine in moderation, but let's not let it disrupt what is important, like money or entertainment or sports or travel or whatever. Whatever. Pride says we just really don't need anything. We don't need revival. We don't need prayer. We don't need discipleship. We don't need fellowship. We don't need the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, at least not on anyone's terms, but our our very own. He can come, but the way we want him to. We We certainly don't need holiness, purity. And the last thing we need is repentance. Most of all, pride does not need or have any room for zeal. But the Lord says to the church of every age and to us today, do not be tepid. Do not be lukewarm. Don't be useless. Don't be made useless. Don't be dulled and polluted by your own pride. Be zealous. Be useful. I'm going to ask us to stand together as we close this morning. Would you please bow your heads across the house with me, just in a private moment? I don't want to alarm anybody, and I'm not going to ask, and I'm not going to isolate you this morning. But I want to talk to you, that person here this morning. You, you are contemplating, well, I'll just say it, you're contemplating suicide you don't think the lord heard or knows or cares but i want but i believe he told me you think well that, and the only reason why i'm so certain about it is cuz that would be that would not never be something that i would cook up in my own imagination on a sunday morning if you're contemplating the taking of your life you don't know if he sees you or knows you or cares but i'm telling you right now With all of the force and furnace of the love of Jesus, stop. Stop. You are under the bondage of, of a delusion and a deceit. The destroyer would seek to take you out, but you are far more loved than you can measure. There is an eternity at stake. Talk to somebody now, today. Call somebody, repent right now. And you know, say, How can you say to a person who's sad, repent? Because it's the best thing to do. It is the lever. Repent. Change what you're thinking. And on that note, let me say to all of this house, my friends, my dear friends, can I just encourage all of us to, to say, Hey, wait a minute. Am I measuring my my passion according to what I think I need? Am I being passionate about Christ and faith and the kingdom and the church? This is written to the church. He's talking to the church. He cares about the church. Is your pa- I'll just say it that way. Is your passion even for the church being measured by your perception of your own need? If you are then you are sipping the cocktail of pride. You are slowly making yourself useless. Lord, I pray for Heritage Church. I give you thanks for this wild, happy, godly, zealous group of people. I'm so grateful, Lord, for this house. I'm so grateful, Lord, for a, a people who are hungry for God. But, Lord, I pray that there would be that, that all of us today would be willing to just, to just be transparent before you and say, Lord, if there be anything offensive in me, deal with it right now. Lord, I want to repent from any matters of pride, specifically any areas where I say, I don't need that, I don't need that, I don't need that, I'm all good. Any way that I have deluded myself to think that I am no longer in need of every single thing that you have. Smith Wigglesworth said, there's a thousand things in the human soul that need revival a thousand times a day." God, help us, prevent us from ever believing that we have exceeded our place of need. Lord, we intentionally, delightfully, gratefully open ourselves. We acknowledge we have, we need you. We need you today. We need you more than ever. We thank you, Lord, that you love us first and you love us most. We welcome you to come in afresh in our lives today in this church. We welcome you to come in and have fellowship. We welcome you to bring renewal into our lives. I, I, I don't know how to say this, but I need to say this as well. I don't know if there's one or what, but I, I, it's weird. But you have hardened your heart. You've almost said, I don't need God. And I don't need the gospel. I don't need church. I don't need that stuff. I don't need that. And, and I want to tell you, my friend, you are deceiving yourself. You could not be more in need than you are when you say you don't need him. Lord isn't pleased with that attitude, but he loves you dearly and wants to be close to you. Today, his word to us, his word to you, his word to the church would simply be this. Be zealous and repent. With everything you've got, turn it away. Recognize what's wrong. Reverse course and return to what is right. Be zealous and repent. I've gone over time, and there are people that are wanting to come in probably. I don't know, do you have a song right now that you're playing? Play it, play it. Friends, take a few moments right now and just let the Lord talk to your heart a little bit. If you want to you find a place of prayer, we have room here at the front. If you want to stand and pray, we can do that. Let's just take a few moments. If you need to slip out, please do, but I'm not going to give a real public loud dismissal quite right now. I, I just want us to respond. If you feel like you need to respond to the gentle voice of the Spirit, if you feel like He's prompting you to repentance in your life, Let me adjure you in his name to do it now. Do it quickly. Don't say, oh, I'll repent at home or on the way home or over coffee. No, pull that lever now. Pull it now. If there's a need for repentance in your life, pull it now.